Hello, good people. This is Sister Julia Walsh, and you're listening to Messy Jesus Business. Welcome to The Mess. I'm here with Robert Ellsberg. Robert is the editor-in-chief and publisher of Orbis Books, where he has worked for 35 years. Robert spent 1975 to 1980 working with Dorothy Day at The Catholic Worker, with two years as managing editor of the paper, and he has edited Day's selected writings, diaries, letters, and other work. He has written and edited 25 books, including six books on saints and holiness. For over 10 years, Robert has written a daily entry, Blessed Among Us, for Give Us This Day from Liturgical Press. His most recent book is Dearest Sister Wendy, A Surprising Story of Faith and Friendship. Robert, welcome to Messy Jesus Business. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. This will be a really fun conversation because I'm aware that our worlds overlap and converge. And I have a sense as I know you and your work, that we have uh, similar hearts. <laughs> if I could just say that <laughs> without knowing for sure, just thinking from the work that I read of yours about holiness and saints and the people of God and how they invite us to be so devoted. I'm really looking forward to hearing a bit about your journey and how you ended up becoming the person you are today. You know, you've been the editor-in-chief at Orbis Books for 35 years now. Amazing. Published yeah. a lot of books on saints, holy people. Your most recent book, Dearest Sister Wendy, A Surprising Story of Faith and Friendship, was just published by Orbis Books a few months back. I'm curious how you have come to know that you're called to be a person that works with words and the stories of holy people. Well, working with words, that's an interesting uh, thing that that goes back a long ways, uh, really. I think probably to when I first joined the Catholic Worker in 1975. I was just 19 at the time, and I didn't really know anything about writing. I just kind of dropped out of college for a few years. Dorothy Day evidently saw something in me and asked me to be the managing editor of the Catholic Worker newspaper. I was just 20 at the time. And I think I learned a lot about writing just from that experience, because previous to that, I'd only been writing for college professors or teachers, you know, the discipline of trying to make myself understood mm. uh, and to kind of get outside of my head and realizing that writing is about communicating and not just expressing yourself. Mm. I think that I learned a lot from that. But then it was just as surprising many years later when I was invited to be the editor-in-chief at Orbis Books without any book publishing background. I was a graduate student then at, at Harvard Divinity School in Theology. And it was still many years before I got over the idea that, you know, I'm not a scholar and an expert, so what do I have to say, you know, to anything but that I had things to share. And so it was 25 years ago that I wrote my first significant book, which was called All Saints, Daily Reflections on Saints, Prophets, and Witnesses for Our Time. It came out of an idea I had for what I thought would be a really cool book. I thought as time had come, a book of daily reflections that would combine stories about traditional canonical saints with my own pantheon of, of heroes, moral witnesses, writers, philosophers, activists, peacemakers, that sort of thing. I really, at the time, didn't imagine that it would have a, a big audience because I thought it would appeal just to people who share my heart like you. 
my kind of theological, spiritual, political kind of interest. Yeah. But it turned out to be successful beyond my expectations, partly because there was this idea of having one reflection per day. Mm. So it made it a kind of a daily devotional. It was a surprise to me really how easily the book came out of me because it's like a 600 page book. Mm -hmm. And I wrote it in basically a year while I had a full time job and little children and everything, basically writing one piece per day. And it just poured out of me. And I really never stopped writing after that. One thing led to another. And that was really the kind of foundation. But it really leads me right up to the present. Before you got involved in the Catholic worker movement, back when you were college students, were you imagining your life as being someone who would be a writer and a publisher, someone who is involved in the development of people's faith? Or was that part of the surprise too? Well, being part of people's faith was the last thing that I had on my mind. I didn't think of myself as a person of deep faith in any sense then. I came to the Catholic Worker by way of the peace movement and my reading of Gandhi and the importance to me of figures who had in some way combined their faith with concern for social justice, civil rights, peace, anti-Vietnam activism. People like the Berrigans, and through them I learned about Dorothy Day, I learned about Thomas Merton. But really, Gandhi was my big hero. Mm -hmm. I decided to take a year off from college, kind of a long story, but a lot of it had to do with my turning 18 while I was in college and dealing with the draft and trying to figure out what my life was for. I went to the Catholic Worker thinking I was only going to be there for a few months and I'd move on. I was attracted by what I knew of Dorothy Day, her heroic resistance to war and violence in all its forms, but I didn't really know much about Catholicism, about her life. It was only after five years that I was there that I actually became a Catholic. Oh. So after I, I left the Catholic Worker, I decided then to return to college and study religion and literature. Mm. Uh, and that led me then, after graduation, to go to Latin America for a year, where I became very interested in liberation theology. That led me back to Harvard Divinity School, and I was there uh, in a doctoral program when I was invited to come to Orbis. Orbis at that time was a publishing, or still is, owned by the Marian Old Fathers and Brothers with a focus on theological voices from the third world, Africa, Latin America, and Asia, but particularly famous for introducing liberation theology from Latin America and later black theology of liberation you know, to a wide audience. I wasn't really thinking very much about spirituality at, at mm. that time. It's interesting the way my interests have, have shifted you know, much more in the years since then, I'm not really a theological scholar by any, any degree, but I've always been very interested in how the gospel, how faith is lived out in the world, and particularly interested in people whose lives embody a living out of the gospel message in you know, heroic ways. So gradually, you know, I guess you'd say my interests have shifted towards spirituality. But again, I never really thought of myself as, a, as being a person who had something of my own to share. Here, I'm just telling other people's stories after all. Mm. But then I began to try to reflect more deeply on what I was learning from the saints, not just telling their stories. So one of the books that I did later was called The Saint's Guide to Happiness, where I spent about five years. It was a hard book to write because I... I came up with a snappy title, and then I had to figure out what that really meant. Basically, I was drawing from the lives of the saints and holy people, the kind of wisdom, the practical wisdom and disciplines that they offer us about that kind of quest for happiness that we all share and how that's 
related to the the call to holiness. Mm -hmm. And later on, I did a book called A Living Gospel, Reading God's Stories in Holy Lives. And that was at that time my most personal book, because I wrote a little bit more about my own story. But by that point, I was now looking at not just the sort of wisdom that the saints have to share, but looking at their life story as a kind of narrative and how the gospel is kind of written in that story. And when I say that, I mean in the narrative of their lives, Mm. which includes not just all the heroic, amazing things they did, but also their uncertainty, their doubts, their search for the vocation, their failures, times when their hearts were lost or broken, and what we can learn about that, about the presence of God in our own lives. I guess my most recent book leading up to that, even much more personal still, the book of my correspondence with Sister Wendy, I wasn't writing this with the idea that I was offering spiritual mm-hmm. you know, wisdom or counsel for anybody else, but just both of us sharing very deeply and personally about our own journeys and our own spiritual uh, experiences, I guess, and realizing that that could have a meaning to other people as well. So no, I never planned this all out or envisioned it. <laughs> And it, it was just sort of one thing after another. Right, so. right. Which sounds like life. Sounds That's sounds what, like you're an ordinary human that way. And yeah, exactly. what I'm hearing underneath what you're talking about, which is interesting to me, Robert, is how your curiosity helped you to discover more and really served as one of your guides. You let your questions about like, well, what is holiness? How do people's stories overlap with the gospel actually be the source of showing you where to go with your work, with your creativity, with the ways that you served and gave to the world that you are serving? (laughs) It says something to me about how vocation, it's a dance of discovery and exploration along with knowing one's deepest desires. Uh, Yeah, that's something I've thought a lot about. I think that certainly, you know, Dorothy Day said, you'll know your vocation by the joy it gives you. you (laughs) And I, I think that, you know, for instance, before I wrote that book, All Saints, I had been trying to write a dissertation in graduate school. I you spent years on that, and I was getting nowhere whatsoever. I was wondering, you know, I should just quit the whole thing, which I did, actually. And the funny thing is, when I quit my plan to write a dissertation, it was that very same summer that I had this idea of writing All Saints. And as I say, the way that it just kind of poured out of me, I couldn't hold it in. Mm. It just wrote itself somehow. That was one of the things that showed me that this was not just an interest that I was pursuing, but that it was something that had been stored up in me for a long time and was Mm. looking for some kind of release. It was something that I really wanted to share with other people and that I've been I've been sort of working on it all my life without even uh, realizing it. But that's, again, you know, one of the things that I explore a lot in my book, A Living Gospel, as I look at people like Thomas Merton or Henry Nowen or Dorothy Day, this way that they kind of found their way to their vocation for what they were meant to do. That came after often a lot of time of just real restlessness and searching and uncertainty and doubt. Certainly in the case of Dorothy Day, who was like 35, you know, when she found the Catholic worker. And she'd had a pretty full life before that as an activist, as a writer. She'd had love affairs. She'd had a baby. She'd had, you know, all kinds of things. She becomes a Catholic. Sometimes we think of the old days in religious kind of language, having a vocation means, oh, I'm going to become a nun or I'm going to be a priest or something like that. But you see something like a case like some, like a Mother Teresa, let's say, yeah. who's like a nun for years before she has this call within a call where she discovers what she's really meant to do. 
or a, a Teresa of Avila, who was a nun for a long time, having a kind of indifferent life, when suddenly something just kind of clicks. And when she does that, it's almost like she's a different person afterwards. And you see that with Dorothy Day. She becomes a Catholic, but like, what's that for? Like, what what's she supposed to do with that? She had this idea that there was got to be some way of connecting her concern for social justice and the poor with her faith. She has no models to look at, you know. Mm -hmm. She has to kind of invent that for herself. And she needed someone like a Peter Morin to come along and sort of give her permission and say, just do it yourself. You know, <laughs> a lot of the saints that I've written about have this idea that there's some kind of vocation, some kind of life that they're called to, but there are no models around. And someone says to them, you do it. Make your own religious congregation or start your own movement or something like that. Or the Mother Teresa, she didn't start with a religious order. She just started going to the highways and byways and caring for dying people. And yeah. Dorothy Day, after she splits up with you know, what she calls her common-law husband, the, the father of her daughter after her conversion, she goes through like these five years of being in the desert, not knowing what she's supposed to do. She's doing some articles. She's trying to make it as a freelance writer. She's you know really kind of lost. And then she gets this idea from Peter Moore to start a newspaper that would promote the radical meaning of the gospel. And she thinks, well, gee, I have a newspaper background. It's so obvious, you know, mm -hmm. I have no money, but, you know, just just do it. You know, this may will be 90 years since the first issue of The Catholic Worker was issued. I edited Dorothy Day's letters. A lot of her earlier diaries are lost, but we have a lot of her earlier letters, including years of her love letters to Forster, the father of her child, mm -hmm. she was trying to persuade to agree to marry her. Mm -hmm. And when she finally realizes that's a dead end, that's when she meets Peter Morin. And sort of one door kind of closes and this other opens on the rest of her life. What was so fascinating to me in looking at her letters is that within six months or so, she's a completely different person. Mm. Before, she's just the single mother writing articles for America Commonweal. And now suddenly she's the founder of a movement. She's the editor of, of a lay Catholic newspaper that she didn't ask anybody's permission to do or anything. She just went out and did it. You know, She's writing to presidents of labor unions. She's writing to editors. She's writing to bishops. She's traveling around, speaking all over the place. And you suddenly see, you know, when sometimes when people find that vocation, that whereas before life was just kind of lost and listless, mm. and suddenly there's this vitality and energy. I think that I've experienced that myself, but I see it in all the stories of the saints that I write about. So is that what holiness is? Is holiness being faithful through the wrestling and then surrendering to the container that we arrive to? Is that what holiness is? Or what is holiness? <laughs> That's a good question. You know, often when we look at the saints, we think we know what it means because they've been canonized or they had miracles or they founded a great religious order or they were mystics or they were martyrs or something like that. Yeah. But the more I look at it, I see it as a journey. You know, it's a path. And, and rather than talk about people who are holy or achieved holiness, for me, it's like people who are walking the path of holiness. And when you think of it that way, rather than emphasizing all the discontinuities between us and saints, like I could never do that, I'm not a saint, or something like that. First of all, before John of the Cross or Teresa of Avila or Mother Teresa were great saints, they were nobodies that nobody ever heard of or whatever. <laughs> they took some kind of step, Ignatius of Loyola, who has this conversion experience, and he's a different person afterwards. But if you'd met him before that, he was a different person. It's this kind of response. It's a it's a responding, I think. And those who become you know, great saints, they continue to answer that call to go kind of deeper and deeper. 
But for all of us, I think that it's, this is what you know. Sister Wendy was always saying to me, it's not some level of achievement, it's the direction of our lives. She said, it's being alive to God's presence in our lives and trusting in that, even though we don't see the destination or where it's all leading. Mm. In my book, A Living Gospel, I write about people like Merton or Henry Nouwen, who are you know kind of flawed in a lot of ways. What I respond to is this idea that they were spiritual explorers who never stopped questing. We're always going farther, always taking the next step. Sister Wendy once quoted the Curé d'Ars to me, the you know, famous uh, priest who someone was talking to him about how holy he was. And he said, I'm not really that holy. I just pay attention. <laughs> There's that kind of being awake to God's presence in our lives and noticing things, responding to things, responding to things that they don't just come to us in prayer, but through our encounters with other people, through the ethical challenges that we face, with the troubles that members of our family or our friends are, are dealing with, their sufferings of people around us. All of those are like signals or like messages that are coming to us from God and calling us to respond. Uh, and, and when we do, we may not even name it or know that that's a religious path that we're on or a path to holiness. Uh, we don't think of it that way. So the people who do that don't think of themselves, aha, this is my way to become a saint. Maybe maybe some people do. <laughs> but I mean, like, you know, someone like Therese of Lisieux, for instance, you know, yeah. who is Dorothy Day's favorite saint, who was so popular and so important because she showed this way to holiness that's not by necessarily doing enormously great, important things. But this kind of the arena of holiness is just in our response to the everyday ordinary things that we face in life, you know, the frustrations, the irritations, the interruptions, the things that we think are wasting our time, and how we respond to that. And I see that very much in Dorothy Day, because that was what her whole life spirituality was focused was the little way the, the encounters of every day, and the practice and becoming more loving, more forgiving, more patient, curbing your tendency to judgment to anger when it's not productive, you know, uh, forgiveness. And that I really felt that it was that kind of practice that prepared her then for the extraordinary things that she did, whether going to jail to protest civil defense drills or starting a Catholic worker house of hospitality or homeless shelter for women or standing up to the IRS and refusing to pay taxes during the Vietnam War, things like that. We think of the saints so much, we identify them with these kind of big moments and don't see how much of their lives are made up of these little moments. Yeah. And the little moments are, are you know, what, what fill our, all of our lives. They're available to us all the time. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, yeah. I'm thinking as you lay it out that way that the response is what matters, but it's also how we respond. Like I could mm -hmm. respond with cold heartedness and rigidity. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And as long as our response is Christ-like, Maybe it's something that brings us deeper into Christ or yeah. moves mm -hmm. us further along in that path of holiness. Sometimes it's a matter of developing habits, you know, yeah. over in our response too, yeah. because you can do one good deed, you know, uh, <laughs> but the way that, you know, that the challenge keeps coming to try to sustain that. And that doesn't mean being just totally pure-minded and perfect in all of our responses but of that kind of examination of conscience. I think that's part of also that so much of the lives of, of the saints is that they are constantly 
scrutinizing their own conscience mm. and, and trying to learn from their experience. I mean, I see that in Dorothy Day's diaries a lot, mm. her looking back on the day and, and thinking, I could have been nicer to that person, mm-hmm. could have given them more time, I could have been a little more patient, mm. and not to, uh, you know, just make herself you know, feel bad or spiritual self-flagellation or something like that. But the idea that our lives are a kind of pilgrimage, you know, and mm. that we're on a journey, and we want to keep making sure that we're pointing in the right direction. So that means constantly looking back and uh, checking where we are, you know, learning from that. Let's talk about Sister Wendy a little bit, shall we? Yeah, I'd love to hear you can describe her and your relationship and what the readers will get to find in the book. Well, many people may be familiar with Sister Wendy or remember her when she was very famous, especially in the 90s, when through some funny fluke, she was discovered by the BBC and given a television program uh, in England and then around the world. She was on public television in this country, Sister Wendy's Odyssey, and there were lots of programs where she would go to museums around the world. And she was very distinctive in this very medieval looking black habit that she would wear, thick glasses and kind of little crooked teeth and a bit of a speech impediment, and not really out of central casting, you could say. And yet she became <laughs> a huge star because she was not just charming, but there, she was fascinating and she was brilliant and wise the way she could walk up to a painting without any script or anything like that. Just in one take, she would stand up there and just offer these insights into what she saw. Well, that was the sort of Sister Wendy that a lot of people knew. That's how I first became aware of her. Mm. She also wrote a number of books. I published several books by her, and that's sort of more or less how we got to know each other. Mm. But she was really, by her vocation, a hermit. She had been a, a nun for decades in her early life. She became a sister when she was 16. She joined a teaching order, the Sisters of Notre Dame de Namur, in South Africa and was educated at Oxford. But she always felt that her real calling was to solitude and prayer. And eventually she was given permission to pursue that. So in 1970, she got permission to live as a hermit on the grounds of a Carmelite monastery in England. She was not a member of the community. She lived in a little trailer within the enclosed property and was very, very happy in this life. She never sought to become a celebrity. In fact, she was really, not just by calling, but by temperament, a solitary person who was not drawn to society, you know, the world. But she felt that when this came to her, this invitation, that it was a kind of ministry. Uh, She felt that it was a way of talking about God or Jesus to people without using that language, because she felt that beauty and art and learning to look in a contemplative way would open people's eyes to looking at all of life and nature and other people in that way as well. So she definitely felt it was a ministry. But when it was over, she was happy to return to her solitude, which meant living all by herself and basically praying nonstop for seven or eight hours a day. By that, I don't mean just reading a prayer book or something. I mean, she would just sit there quietly with her eyes closed uh, all night long. She would get up at like eight or nine at night and pray all night long. So she was kind of like a, a sort of modern anchoress, mm. like Julian of Norwich. You know, who, Norwich yeah. is only 15 minutes away from, from the monastery there. But this idea of living, of, of, of a calling to complete a life of solitude and prayer. Now, when she got to be too old to manage by herself, they moved her into the enclosure, mm-hmm. and there an American-born Carmelite nun with Sister Leslie would come in and help her every day, bring her her food, and take dictation on her correspondence. 
I had been exchanging letters with Sister Wendy for many, many years. Mostly there were her little handwritten, absolutely inscrutable postcards. Most of the time I could barely make out what they said. And at one point she'd even said, I enjoy your letters, but if I'm to live a life of solitude, communication without a real purpose is kind of inconsistent with my life. <laughs> so she she always kept these, had these sort of boundaries and I respected that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, was, I, I wasn't it. looking to, I, went, well, I, wasn't, I wasn't looking to try to become her pal or anything like that. Yeah, okay. But something then very amazing happened mm -hmm. just in the last three years of her life, as it turned out. She was now dictating letters to Sister Leslie. And it all started with a, a postcard that went astray because it had the wrong post box on it. And they asked, you know, we sent you a card, uh, but it came back. So I sent my correct address. And I mentioned that I was publishing a book of writings by Vincent van Gogh. And that interested her very much. And she wrote back, said, I'd like to hear more about that. Well, I responded. She responded. I thought that, well, that, that'll be the end of that. She'll draw the, the curtains closed again. Yeah. And the great silence will return. But it just kept on going. You know, she'd read some of my books. She was kind of a huge fan of Dorothy Day. And also my books on saints, because she's very interested in saints and the question of holiness. And so we began like writing about that and exchanging our thoughts about who our favorite saints were. In fact, I was invited to give a talk on my five favorite saints. Well, so we were saying, like, well, who would your five favorite saints be? And everything. And she found that quite an actually interesting challenge. So that went on for a while. And gradually it became increasingly personal as I shared more things about myself. And she did not close the shutters at all. In fact, she began to uh, become very engaged with everything I shared with her. And, you know, we were now exchanging letters on a daily basis. And this went on for, you know, two or three years. And during that time, it became not just a deeply important kind of, you know, relationship for us, but for me, it became a kind of a central aspect of my own spiritual life was sharing myself and receiving from her in return this deep kind of spiritual reflection and communion as we both kind of reflected on the way that God was present in our our lives. She was not a person who was into self-examination at all. In <laughs> fact, she saw no value in that whatsoever. <laughs> she was completely focused on, you know, I belong to God right now. That's all that matters. <laughs> I'd said, well, it'd be very interesting if you would write more about your story. And she said, I have no story. <laughs> uh, there's no, absolutely nothing to say about my life. You know, I would share things about myself and I would say, well, have anything like that ever happened to you or you ever feel that way? And she would kind of begin to respond and open up about things about her childhood and about her early life and as a nun. You know, it was very, very unfamiliar ground for her. She'd never done this with anybody before. And I think had not, not even all those hours alone with her eyes closed, had she looked at her life in that kind of a way. And yet, for instance, talking about the subject of vocation, the interesting thing about Sister Wendy, who who was really a mystic, from, from the age of four, she had this intense sense of God's presence and reality. All she ever wanted as a child was to become a nun. And so she entered the convent as soon as she could when she was 16. Mm -hmm. She didn't shop around and decide, you know, figure out what would be the most congenial community for her, where she'd have all the time in the world for prayer or something. And she finds herself in a teaching order where she had to you know, learn how to be in a classroom with kids and teenagers and stuff. It was completely uncongenial to her. And yet it did also give her a very solid education, which she wouldn't have had if she just joined the Carmelites at that time. In fact, later she said, if I become a Carmelite, 
which in a way would seem ideal for me, I wouldn't have nearly the uh, room or the access to solitude and, and silence that I have now in my, my life. It was the kind of frustration of her you know, desire to be a contemplative that finally led to a sort of physical and mental breakdown. And mm. they said, okay, just you know, go follow your heart and mm. be a hermit. And so she felt that she'd been on this path that led to the ideal, the perfect kind of life for her. And perfect, not just because she, it was her kind of religious vocation or calling, but her temperament as well. As I got to know her better, you know, it was very clear from all that she told me about her life that she'd always felt like a very strange person, that she didn't fit in with other people, that she didn't really know how to be friends with people, mm. that she wasn't in a lot of ways really wasn't all that interested in other people. She could be charming and friendly, but she said, I, I really never really gave other people much thought. You know, mm. I was sort of praying for the world, but not for actual people. She really liked to be alone. She felt that other people wouldn't understand her, that she wouldn't really understand them. It's maybe superficial to say, but probably we would say she was sort of on the spectrum somewhere. It, it made this life actually very ideal for her, very well suited for it. But it also meant that she had gone very far in her life without much real intimate uh, relationship with another person. Oh. You know, there were people she wrote to, and there, I've I've heard from many people now who said, well, "I got lots of letters from Sister Wendy," but you no, know, they were all about art or they were friendly kinds of things, yeah. often very loving, but not with the intimacy that began to come through in in our correspondence, where I felt that both of us were we're really growing and changing in this relationship and this kind of dance that was going on that we were sharing together. She was dying during this time. Uh, when I first began writing to her, she said that she had uh, a terminal disease, pulmonary fibrosis. Her lungs were hardening. It became increasingly difficult for her to breathe. She was always having little heart attacks. She was always falling down and breaking something. Mm. So she was really becoming kind of physically decrepit. And yet her mind and her heart, her spirit were fantastically alive and sharp right up to the end. And I could see, it seemed to me that in the course of our correspondence, a kind of softening. She was letting go of certain kinds of judgment. She was opening herself up to the world in a different way through the things that I was sharing with her, even reconsidering many convictions and judgments and attitudes that she'd had for much of her life. She had this you know, deep love of God no doubt about it. But I think this idea that there were other kinds of love as well, and uh, becoming really close to another person, even though we couldn't be, you know, more dissimilar in you know, many ways. Hmm. Uh, but uh, we both came into each other's lives at a very important providential time, I think. And it was a very graced experience that continued until her death. I should back up a little bit and say that when I told her that I would be wondering if she, if she would share more write more about her personal life or her journey. And she said, oh, no one would be interested in that. There's nothing to say. But eventually she said, and this is only a few months into our correspondence, you know, it occurs to me that maybe you could cobble something together from these letters we've been sharing. <laughs> and I think at that time, maybe we thought I would ask her questions and I would take her answers and I would make a little book out of it or something like that. Mm. I had no idea, of course, where this correspondence was going to continue for the next couple of years. Mm. And that it was really not just no quotations from Sister Wendy or some anecdotes, but the relationship itself was that story, was that text. Mm. It might have something of importance, you know, for for other people, for other readers. Wow, that's a really beautiful story, and it's to me such a story of the Holy Spirit working, right, and, mm -hmm. and in surprising ways. Again, 
uh, it's a story of vocation, a story of holiness, a story of relationship, discovery, exploration, the response uh, in ordinary ways to others, to God, to the invitations, but in ways that may or may not be heroic, right? And how there's sort of this unfolding that happens. I'm fascinated, too, with how it's a story which I think is parallel for most of our human experiences where we we sort of step into something thinking, oh, maybe it's going to go like this. You know, you didn't even know if, if she would stop writing you. <laughs> and yeah, it right, turned right. into this whole other thing that now you get to share with the world and you get to offer this witness with others. So what do you have to say about that and how even in the response to the relationships, to the actions there's surprise and the spirit might be the one who's guiding and directing and has more control over the providence. Mm -hmm. I think there are a lot of, you know, times in our lives where at the moment we don't really recognize the significance of what's happening. You know, <laughs> you know when I met Dorothy Day when I was 19 or something, you know, I did not know that this was going to change my whole life, that this was going to be like the foundational encounter in my life. And that's not to overstate the nature of my relationship with her. There are lots of people who knew her much longer, knew her much better than I did. People have referred to me as a very close friend of Dorothy Day. I'll correct them and say, well, you know, I was a kid and she was in her 80s and right. I loved to, to be around her and she set me on my path and everything. The fact that someone like that even noticed me mm. or encouraged me, you know, or entrusted me with something important that I didn't know that I was capable of doing at the time. And I can look back and I can see that everything in my life came out of that sort of acorn you know, yeah. of an experience or encounter. But I think one of the things that Sister Wendy and I shared a lot as we really got into this was really thinking about the ways that we could see the presence of grace and the presence of God in our lives. And the fact that that was often in disguise you know, it was not like like an uh, ecstasy or some you know kind of mm. our hearts were pierced by god's love in some just you know totally life-changing uh, mm. way but you know even someone like dorothy day i've talked about how she you know had a child she decided to become a catholic the father of her child wouldn't get married and so she felt she had to separate from him she tried writing him for years, trying to cajole him into changing his mind and, and marrying her, you know. And you think that everything in Dorothy Day's life, the Dorothy Day that we know, all came about because of the frustration of her heart's desire. Mm. It was exactly what seemed like the complete failure or thwarting of what she most wanted in life that opened up this whole other pathway, this doorway. And when I look back on my life, I can see on one hand how I can tell the story where I'm like Tarzan and there are these like one <laughs> vine, this vine, I reach out my hand and it's just there. Uh -huh. It almost feels like that because I just went from one thing to another, from another. Yeah. I met this person, they introduced me to that person. Yeah. This opened up, this opened up, this person invited me to do this, whatever. And, and it could just seem like, wow, how amazingly lucky you, you, know, <laughs> you are. But there is something about living in, in a kind of way that first of all makes you recognize that that's a vine, you know, mm. and to respond to it. There may be many other occasions in life where where we have an invitation of some kind or a challenge of some kind, and we decide to let it go because it seems too scary or too risky or too uncertain or whatever. 
Uh, we stick with what we know best. So maybe there's a certain kind of personality or an aptitude for that kind of thing. But the point is that I could really tell the story in a very different way. Mm. And it's not just like something always seems to happen in a good way. But boy, then there are these times when of uh, feeling completely in the dark, you know, hard things in my life of having children that went through very difficult things of going through a divorce of times when I felt like a complete, you know, failure, my graduate studies uh, seem to be completely sterile and fruitless, etc. The point is that all those are part of the story, too. If you filter all of that out, and it makes it look like, oh, this just all happened, it was all easy, you know, it's this kind of dialectic, you know, between the light and and the shadows. And when you begin to look at your life that way, it just takes on a whole different shape and meaning. And you can feel gratitude even for the things that were hard. Of course, I'm happy if people read this book and enjoy it and mm. find it interesting and they fall in love with Sister Wendy or whatever. Yeah. Uh, that I'm happy about that. But I've been really amazed by the number of people who read the book yeah. and say, it really made me think about my life in a different way. I've been very uh, touched by the things that Pope Francis shares about himself. This idea that he has of a journey faith in which we encounter, we meet God along the way. And that the story of the people of faith is also a story of wandering in the desert for 40 years and, and or of the days after Good Friday or the early church or whatever, where no one knew where this was all going or what was going to happen next or what it all meant mm-hmm. after Good Friday. What, what, what the hell was that all about? Mm-hmm. You know, we followed Jesus around and now he's dead. It's not just a matter of knowing these doctrines or truths that we intellectually affirm, but living on this journey, on this path, in which our uncertainty, our doubt, is all part of the story. Just as if you look at the gospel story, you see that Jesus's life is not just all about glorious mysteries. That was a great day. That day he turned water into wine. That was a really great day. You know, they had all the multitude. But look at all those days of just struggle. People not under his own disciples after he's been with them for years have no idea what he's talking about yeah. and are arguing and bickering with each other about who's the greatest and right. stuff. All the people with their demands and he can't get away from them, they're always there and wanting to be healed and <laughs> see a sign or all the people who are opposing him and all the times when he just has to get away from it all and sit on a boat on a lake where he can get a little peace and quiet or something. Not to mention the really terrible things that lie ahead. All of that is part of of this narrative of the gospel. And that's why it's so interesting that our faith is rooted in a story, in a narrative, and not just in a a book of spiritual wisdom or teachings or something like that. That's right. Maxims, you know. It's the story of of life, you know. Amen. And uh, writing to Sister Wendy, a person who lives in a room without a view, (laughs) half the time in the dark, in complete silence that she could hold up a mirror to myself and my own life that could help me understand it in deeper ways. You know, I normally end my interviews by asking people about what discipleship is or what's messy about living the gospel. But I think I'd like to conclude this conversation by asking you to comment on what it means to live the gospel radically and what the saints or ordinary folks, or extraordinary folks like Sister Wendy have taught you? I hesitate or shy about sounding like I have my own sort of deep spiritual wisdom or something. People, you know, ask, I'd love to hear more about your your spiritual practice or something. And I, 
I think like, well, I don't know what that is exactly. I write about, <laughs> I write about saints and stuff like that. You know, why I write about the saints is because I feel that we are shaped and affected by what we pay attention to. And we are just drowning in messages about things, you know, they're clickbait of you know, visual or auditory or whatever, you know, to get us to turn and look at something of somebody who's trying to sell us something, whatever, an idea or, or a product or something like that. But I think that we are shaped by and we're very affected by what we love, what we care about, what we pay attention to, what we admire. It's one of the reasons why Sister Wendy was trying to get people to look at art, mm. you know, not because she had a program for art appreciation or something like that, you know, maybe they become artists or something, but that this way of stopping and paying attention to something, seeing very deeply into it, and how that can become a kind of spiritual practice, even if you don't know that that's what's happening, uh, rather than just, you know, take a look, oh, that's interesting, that's pretty, I move on to something else. Stop and pay attention. As you do that and make that part of your habitual practice, you're amazed by all the other things that you begin to notice. Some of those may be just the nature and beauty that we see around us, but it could also be suffering. It could also be other people's tragedy. It could be things that are not right, things that are unjust. All of that then begins to affect how we use our time, what we give our attention to. And again, I don't set myself as a great example because I spend a lot of my time wasted looking at Twitter and things like that. <laughs> but I feel that the, the time that I put into reflecting on the saints is time that's feeding my soul in some way. My aim in that is to, not just for my own benefit, to think though that spreading these kind of seeds of mindfulness and compassion and awareness, you know, can have fruit that you know, have no idea. One of the things I've been doing for over 10 years is I write a, a daily uh, piece for Give Us This Day, which is a prayer journal published by Liturgical Press. Yeah. 12 years I've been doing this now. And it's sort of like the spirit of all saints. I combine traditional saints with people that I know and people all around us. And, and it goes to about 150,000 readers. You know, you read the, the gospel text of the day or the readings of the day, and there's maybe a little reflection on that as well. But the, to go from that to then reflecting on how that has been lived out in an actual life, maybe somebody a thousand years ago, but maybe somebody who just died last year, and you never know what the effect of that is going to be, you know? So living the gospel is about paying attention and allowing our own lives to be a witness for others. Yeah, I mean, that sounds... <laughs> say, <laughs> Just checking. Amen. That, that's, that, sounds, that sounds good. That sounds, yeah, that sounds, you know, I think ideally that our lives are a witness, but even there, you know, we don't, you never know. I, I wrote a piece for Give Us This Day, somebody that would never appear in any other book of saints, a woman just called Mrs. Barrett, uh, who appears in Dorothy's autobiography, Dorothy Day's autobiography. She describes how when she was a child, she was living in a kind of tenement house in Chicago. And she was going next door to visit her friend Catherine Barrett, and she burst into the room in, in the kitchen there. She found Catherine's mother, Mrs. Barrett, on her knees saying her prayers. And Mrs. Barrett said, oh, Catherine's not here. Come back later or whatever. And then went back to her prayers. And Dorothy, you know, did not grow up in a pious Catholic house or anything like that at all. There was something holy and mysterious about what she'd just seen. 
And it stuck with her. And here, the fact that, you know, all the things she's gone through in her life of being a radical and a pacifist and being arrested in the castles of hospitality and all this kind of life among the poor, et cetera, like that, that you know, going back and looking at her memories, her mind lights on the story of this woman that she saw saying her prayers. And the idea that in this maybe chaos of her apartment with all these children and everything like that, that her faith gave her some kind of center or some kind of balance or some kind of meaning in her life that gave a kind of dignity to her life was something that stuck with her and planted a seed in her, her in in her. And she said, you know, I thought of all the strife that I witnessed was part of in my life. I would I would often think back about Mrs. Barrett, you know, who would do her dishes and then in her kitchen and then get down on her knees and pray. And I thought like, okay, Dorothy Day may be canonized one day, whereas if it weren't for Dorothy, no one would ever remember Mrs. Barrett. Uh, but the idea that behind every great saint, who knows how many just countless anonymous people there are, who's just an act of goodness or charity or courage or self-sacrifice, solidarity or faith would plant seeds that would change someone else's life. Someone said, you know, that we think of like penance as, you know, hurting ourselves or starving ourselves or something like that. But sometimes even just smiling when we don't feel like it, that communicates something or plants some, you know, have some ripple effect that we have no idea about. And right. there are opportunities that we have every minute of every day to do that. But most of the time we forget about it. Or And even if we do it, we may not even know that we're doing it. <laughs> uh, right. So someday maybe, you know, eternity we'll, we'll look back and we'll see this catalog of you know, good good things we did, but mm. <laughs> or the effect that we had, we didn't even know it. Thank you, Robert, for sharing your wisdom with me, with the listeners today, for sharing these wonderful stories. How can our listeners learn more about you and your work and buy your books? A lot of my books are, some of them published by Orbis, including the new one by uh, about Sister Wendy. Uh, other publishers, you can find them on wherever you buy your books, I guess. I, I don't have a blog or a website of my own uh you can uh, find me on twitter on most days there you go <laughs> at, at robert elsberg anyway thank you but i've really enjoyed this conversation oh you. thank you robert messy jesus business is produced and edited by colin Wamscans. you can find us online at messyjesusbusiness.com and on facebook twitter instagram and patreon if you like what you heard, please be sure to mention our podcast to your friends and followers. And we'd love to have your support via Patreon. From the bottom of our hearts and the middle of the mess, thank you. Messy Jesus Business is produced in partnership with the Franciscan Sisters of Perpetual Adoration. You can learn more about our religious community and donate to our mission at www.fspa.org. I'm Sister Julia Walsh, and I'll catch up with you next time. Until then, peace and all good.